Well, it is good to be with you this morning. It's good to be part of the service with Betsy. I want, to put, I want you to put yourself in my shoes for a moment. Betsy is a reverend doctor. I am not a reverend doctor. <laughs> Furthermore, Betsy's PhD is in the area of preaching, which is my task here this morning. But it is a joy to celebrate with you. Um, I love my wife very much. I believe that she's very gifted. And uh, I think that you are experiencing that, and you'll continue to experience that. So God's word to us this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to be reading in chapter 1, starting at verse 18, and reading through into chapter 2, verse 5. So 118 to 2, verse 5. And before I do so, let's join our hearts together before God in prayer. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. Open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our hearts to hold it, our hands to serve it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18, we read from the Apostle Paul, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God, 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over 150 years ago in the United States, there was a war called the Civil War. And one of the pivotal battles in this war was the Battle of Gettysburg. In the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg, the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, gave an address at that battlefield to commemorate that event and to dedicate that land as a memorial. Now, politicians' speeches at the time were usually uh, quite long, maybe even more so than today. There was, of course, no television, no radio, and if you were going to load up your wagon or saddle up your pony and travel out somewhere to hear someone's speech, why, you expected it to go on for a while, a couple hours, especially for a momentous occasion. What Abraham Lincoln gave the people that day, however, was a paltry 271 words, two minutes, less than two minutes, according to History.com. The reception from the audience was apparently a smattering of polite, if somewhat confused, applause that was barely audible. Some people praised the president, but a lot of people did not. The Chicago Times, for example, printed, The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads, all Americans at the time were men, as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame. At this speech. But what Lincoln understood was that his words were not the point. He did not need to create meaning for this situation with his eloquence. The meaning was already there in what had happened at the battlefield. Listen to Lincoln's words We cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. Lincoln's short and shamefully foolish speech pointed to a powerful event that stands on its own. And he understood that to try to carry the day with his embellished, wise, eloquent words would only serve to empty the event of its power. 
Now, this is the posture that the Apostle Paul takes in his letter to the Corinthians when he writes, Christ sent me to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul knew the cross did not need his own verbal embellishments to give it meaning. In this passage that we read, Paul writes a lot about foolishness, and wisdom, and words, and power. Paul, of course, is writing here to his good friends in the city of Corinth, the city where he himself spent a year and a half preaching the gospel and where he planted a Christian church. And Paul's emphasis on words of wisdom and foolishness has particular relevance to the context of the city of Corinth. The streets and marketplaces of Corinth displayed a menagerie of sophisticated ideas and arguments and philosophies. These streets were a battleground for the wise and the eloquent. The ancient writer Dio Chrysostom visited Corinth in the first century and said you could hear crowds of wretched sophists, these silver-tongued philosophers, around Poseidon's temple, shouting and reviling one another, their disciples fighting with one another, many writers reading aloud their stupid words, many poets reciting their poems while others applauded them, many jugglers showing off their tricks, many fortune tellers telling fortunes, lawyers perverting judgment, and peddlers peddling whatever they happen to have. The streets of Corinth sound like the physical manifestation of a bad Twitter feed. There's prominent people arguing with each other. Their followers are arguing with each other. People are trying to impress one another with spectacle. They are interpreting the future, and they're trying to sell whatever they have. It's a cacophony of people clamoring for attention with their words and antics. And in order to spread your ideas in Corinth, you had to join this marketplace circus. You had to outsell, out-argue, outperform. You needed to carve out a niche with a viable product. Are you looking for a new God? Let me give you five reasons you should try out Jesus 2.0, even better than the real thing. It's against this backdrop that Paul says the most obvious thing. The message of the cross is foolishness. Well, in this competitive arena of ideas, that message certainly is. Nobody is going to buy the message of a cross. Paul calls it like it is. He says the message of the cross is foolishness. Preaching Christ crucified, meaning preaching a Savior who is killed on a cross, why that's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Greek word Paul uses behind stumbling block is connected to the English word scandal. And the Greek word behind foolishness is connected to the English word moron. Clearly, Paul needs to do some rebranding on this message of the cross. It is not attractive. See, Paul knows what the people want. He says, Jews demand signs. We see this in the life of Jesus where the religious elite come up to him and ask him for signs. And Paul says, Greeks look for wisdom. 
They had a hyperactive pursuit of philosophical wisdom and rhetorically smooth arguments. But instead, Paul comes with this message of a cross? It's scandalous. It's moronic. A cross is disgusting. The ancient writer Cicero said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. No thank you to the cross. The early Christian Justin Martyr had a dialogue with a Jewish rabbi who said to Justin, this your so-called Christ is without honor and glory. So that he had even fallen unto the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. This curse he's talking about is a reference to Deuteronomy where it says, Anyone who hangs from a tree is cursed. No thank you to the cross. The cross was scandalous to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And is the cross ever foolish or scandalous to us? Well, we have sanitized the cross. We have sentimentalized the cross. We have it at the front of our churches or on resplendent stained glass windows and gold filigree jewelry. We sing piously, if sometimes perhaps absent-mindedly, about the old rugged cross and Oh, the wonderful cross. The cross is not offensive today. It's an accessory. The cross has no shock power for us. So maybe Paul's words on the foolishness of the cross and the scandal of the cross have nothing to do with me and you. We can skip right to the good stuff. No, I don't don't think so. Still today, the cross seems like a hard sell in a busy world of Twitter feeds and 24-hour news cycles, advertisements, politics and entertainment, celebrity platforms and Instagram stories. There seem to be better options out there calling for our time and our imitation. The cross doesn't seem to be enough. See, the reason the message of the cross is scandalous, scandalous and foolish to us is because it undermines what we value, which is our own contribution to our identity and salvation. The cross repels pride. It is a pride repellent. The message of the cross says you don't contribute anything. What you can do, what you have, who you're copying or looking like, anything you try to contribute to the cross will empty the cross of its power in your life. And that's a stumbling block. Because we like to think our wisdom and strength are worth something. Whatever those are. Our knowledge, our abilities, our business, our wealth, our status... I read a story about a man in Nepal who lived as a spiritual hermit out in a cave. He dedicated his life to the practices of meditation and silence and solitude. The local villagers revered him as a holy man in their community. So they brought him food to the entrance of his cave, but that was just about the only human interaction he ever had. So he dedicated himself to deep meditation 
in his cave for years, a spiritual journey. The day came when this man heard that the Dalai Lama was going to be passing through his region. The man was eager for some advice on his inward spiritual journey. He thought the Dalai Lama could impart some higher wisdom to him. So a meeting was arranged. The man explained his desire to the Dalai Lama. He said, what higher wisdom do you have for me? The Dalai Lama looked him in the eye and said, get a life. The hermit was stunned. He thought he would be affirmed and encouraged in his wise pursuit. And the Dalai Lama essentially told him, your wisdom is foolish. For this man, the Dalai Lama's advice was too simple, too unsophisticated. It sounded like foolishness. Paul talks about the foolishness of his message. Why was it foolish? Because these marketplace tweeters in Corinth, in the Corinthian streets, had far more sophisticated wisdom by all human metrics. And Paul's offering is a cross? It's too simple, too unsophisticated. It sounded like foolishness. Yes, the cross undermines what we seem naturally to value, our own contributions to our identity and salvation. The cross repels our pride. As one commentator writes, the cross looks like the height of folly to those who are self-absorbed. They reject it because it challenges the cherished value of personal gratification, whose currency is wealth fame, and power. The cross is a scandal today as it was in Paul's day because it challenges the cherished value of personal gratification. In two wonderfully imaginative turns of phrase, Paul writes about the foolishness of God. And the weakness of God, the weakness of God, the creator of the universe in his weakness. But the cross, this weak and foolish thing, Paul says, is wiser than human wisdom and stronger than human strength. If we are going to get a life, we are going to find it at the foot of the cross, this weak thing that God uses to shame the world's strength. And that is why Paul writes to his dear friends in Corinth, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is the center. It doesn't need embellishment. Paul writes, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. One ancient testimony describes the Apostle Paul as being quite unimpressive in person. It claims he was short, heavy, bow-legged, bald, his eyebrows connected, and he had a large nose. It says, his letters are strong, but his bodily presence is weak. How true this was to Paul's actual manner, we don't know. But it would certainly fit what Paul is saying here. My preaching is not about wisdom, but about a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This does not mean that Paul preached badly. 
what Paul means is that the power of his message is not in his words, but in the true event his words point to. And the event that empowers preaching to move, to transform, to reconcile, to heal, to convict, and to comfort is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ who shows up again in the preached word of God. The cross is where God meets humanity's deepest hurt and darkness and brokenness. The cross is where we see that God is not only for us, but God is also with us. The cross is where love and justice meet each other, where heaven and earth embrace, where the Lord of the universe takes up that universe's cause and suffers under the measure of human sin in order to draw humanity to himself and to show us his welcoming love. The cross, which looks like an object of weakness, is the power of God for those who are being saved. Paul's driving purpose in life was to harness and direct his words to the best of his ability, whether spoken or written, to point to the cross and to let the crucified Christ be the message. To play off of Abraham Lincoln's words, the Son of God who struggled there has consecrated the cross far above our poor power to add or detract. The world may little note nor long remember what preachers say here, but it can never forget what Christ did there. Friends of Jesus Christ, at the cross, God invites you to get a life. Paul Scott Wilson, who I think Betsy knows, He was her doctoral supervisor, writes this to preachers. There may be no way to introduce Christ to our people apart from the cross and resurrection. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is his character. He is both the one who died their death for them and he is the one God raised up from the dead in righteousness to glory on their behalf. The cross and the resurrection are a barrier and a stumbling block. And yet they collectively remain the doorway to Christian faith. And Frederick Buechner points out this about the cross. He writes, A six-pointed star, a crescent moon, a lotus, the symbols of other religions suggest beauty and light. The symbol of Christianity is an instrument of death. It suggests, at the very least, hope. Hope. Because to have an instrument of death as the central symbol of your faith is to proclaim boldly that you believe death is not the end. The cross represents the hope that death will be swallowed up in victory. And that hope is the center of the preaching of the gospel. And the good news for you all today is that you ordain a very good preacher. 
This has been testified in the video recordings, and I imagine it has been verified by your own experience of Betsy's gifts already. And the good news for Betsy is that, as St. Augustine often noted, the success of preaching depends on God's grace. Augustine knew what Paul knew. Eloquent and well-crafted words won't lift a sermon off the runway, but God's grace and Holy Spirit will. So friends, when Betsy hits more than she misses, remember that it is God's grace at work here lifting her words and opening your hearts by God's power in the cross and resurrection life of Christ Jesus our Lord, who shows up still today when the power of the gospel is proclaimed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's join our hearts in prayer. O Lord, we give you our lives May our heart, our minds, and our desires be yours. May our hands and feet and voices move as you would choose. May our moments and days flow with endless praise. Fix our eyes and our lives on the cross and resurrection of Christ, we pray. Amen.